Sometimes you need someone to be around you Someone to sit down and pour you short chew But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way Sometimes that's when you finally find your space Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in my closet in Tokyo. And with me in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors. And today we move beyond WTO GIs into other regional styles of shochu that do not have WTO or even Japanese governmental protection. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades and are very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Christopher. You and I have just finished a pretty whirlwind、uh, series of trips and good to be back home and, and being able to relax a little bit, get some rest before we,、mm-hmm. we uh, push forward into the fall and, and winter months as, as there's more and more things to do. I haven't yet made it to Yamato Zakura for this season, so I know that there's hard work ahead of me. But in thinking about everything that we've been doing and starting with all of those GI episodes we did, and then we, we finished that off with terroir, there are a lot of other styles of shochu that really have a regional presence. They don't necessarily have a GI, but they do. Predominate a specific distilling region. And it made sense to kind of tackle that a little bit. Sure. Thinking back, the first shochu I ever had was not one of the GIs. It wasn't a barley shochu from Iki Island. It wasn't a satsuma shochu from Kagoshima. It wasn't a rice shochu from Kumamoto. It was actually Ichiko, which is a hugely popular brand here in Japan and actually abroad. And、uh, it's delicious. I still drink it. It's still something I enjoy when I have the chance, but it doesn't have that. Special regional designation. Right. And I guess maybe that's because it's a little bit younger than some of the other ones, but, but still, I, I digress. I mean, today, of course, we are talking about 100% barley shochu produced in Oita Prefecture, which, of course, in Japan is known as Oita Mugi Jochu. This prefecture is a very mountainous region east of Fukuoka, where Stephen is based, of course, and it kind of bills itself as the Onsen Prefecture due to all of the The thermal activity and the natural hot springs that are just everywhere you go when you're traveling in that region. They're known for one style of shochu and basically one style only. And that's this, as we said before, 100% barley shochu, meaning that the koji is grown onto steamed barley rather than the nearly de facto otherwise rice, which is, has been used in Japan for generations upon generations. That's right. And before we dive in, to give you an idea of how abundant hot springs are in Oita, I mean, lots of places in Japan claim to be the onsen prefecture, right? There's little pockets、mm-hmm. of, of mountainous regions all over the country where you can have beautiful onsen soaking times. But Oita did make a little logo and they really do build themselves this way. But in Oita, a cottage industry rose up after the Tohoku disaster, that devastating earthquake, tsunami, and the resulting nuclear meltdown that basically shut down the nuclear reactors in Japan. Right. Japan doesn't really have much native energy available to itself. So, in order to increase domestic energy production, Japan made a pretty heavy investment in, in solar and wind power. But in Oita, they went geothermal. So, residents are now being incentivized to install systems on their land that harness all that heat down below the surface. And I'd never heard of that before talking with residents in Oita. Maybe that also happens in other parts of the country, but it just sort of surprised me that it's just so. Active down there and so warm that they can actually use that thermal energy to, 
to harness it and and uh, and power things. So, yeah, I mean, just walking around certain communities up in the hills, especially of Oita, you there's like just steam coming through the grates in the in the streets, right? It's it's an incredibly active area for geothermal energy. It's got a to my mind, it's going to make some a pretty good uh, Oyuwadi situation there. Maybe that that's uh, something that not everybody thinks of first and foremost when they talk about Oita Mugi Jochu, but some it sometimes works, I think. But to get back on track here, the inception of this hundred percent barley shochu and it's really domination on the part of Oita Prefecture. It really, actually, at least you can make the argument that there was some influence from neighboring Miyazaki, uh, at least by one telling of the story anyway, the telling that Stephen and I are both familiar with back in the 70s, Tarashi Yanagita, the toji of Yanagita Distillery, his father began making 100% barley shochu at Yanagita Distillery in Miyakonojo City. So that's very far down south at the, the low end of um, Miyazaki Prefecture, right across the border from Kagoshima. And of course, they were sweet potato shochu makers, but they were getting their heads handed to them. Their lunch was being eaten by their very large next door neighbors, Kirishima Distillery, the makers of the famed Kurokiri. So they began making 100% barley shochu. And pretty soon, some representatives from Nikaido Distillery up to the north in neighboring Oita Prefecture, they came to pay a visit. That's right. And it's hard to imagine this level of cooperation happening between distilleries today because the industry's gotten so much larger. But all of this predates that national footprint of this indigenous spirit. Right. Back in those days, distilleries predominantly made shochu for their local market. And if they made something good enough, it might get distributed across the prefecture and maybe even in neighboring prefectures. And if they were really lucky, it might go up to the major cities in Kansai or Kanto. But that was the exception rather than the norm. If you can imagine, you have Nikaido kind of heading down south to learn about barley, 100% barley koji and barley shochu opportunities. And then also simultaneously, they're going west to learn from Kitaya or at least to observe this new vacuum pot distillation technology that would soon take over the entire industry, at least for, for some ingredients like barley and rice. And voila, we have revolution, essentially. Nikaido's vacuum distilled 100% barley shochu made quite a splash during the first half of the 70s. They were working on barley koji and, and then also this vacuum distillation in 1973 and shortly thereafter. And then their name brand, their namesake brand, Nikaido, was released, I think, in 1973 or 1974. So this was a momentous occasion for the industry. It really would set the tone for what Honkaku Shochu could be, become in the future. So this was honestly the first boom. It was the first ripple. It wasn't as big as any of the later booms, but it really started to set the tone for the industry. It was the beginning of this transition of this local Southern spirit becoming a national drink available virtually everywhere in the country, every bar, every restaurant, and now every supermarket and every convenience store. Yeah, Nikaido really was just the tip of the spear. I mean, Sanwa Shurui, another Oita shochu maker, took the vacuum still and the 100% barley process that Nikaido started with. And then they added their ability and experience with blending because they were actually a combination of four different companies that had merged in the 1950s. 
and they all kept producing and they needed to blend their products. And so they took those two Nikaido innovations plus the blending techniques and they took shochu to unseen heights. Their Ichigo brand was launched in 1979 and the industry has never been the same. It's not too much to say that. For the first time, there was a national shochu brand that became synonymous with high quality honkaku shochu. And their branding was absolutely genius. To this day, the bottles have a subtitle or a slogan that reads Shitamachi no Napoleon, which literally means downtown Napoleon. And at the time, whiskey and cognac were considered the drinks of sophistication among Japanese city dwellers who found themselves with more money in their pockets than ever before. The folks who created the Ichiko marketing campaign took that love of cognac and turned it on its head by claiming to be essentially cognac for the common man and did ever work. Yeah, and in relatively short order, Ichiko became the largest brand and Sanwa Shirui, the largest company in the entire shochu industry. And they did it all through blending various 100% barley shochu distillates that they themselves produced. A little bit of barrel age, maybe a little bit of atmospheric distilled, but most of it really was vacuum distilled. The lion's share was vacuum distilled barley shochu. But all of this is made with different yeasts and sometimes even different koji strains to create variety, some with more body, others with more fruitiness. The resulting drink is really, really super easy going down. And honestly, I don't think that I don't think the formula has changed all that much since the late 1970s. It really still is a very smooth, super sessionable barley shochu. Today, Samwa Shuri has exacting expectations for their employees. You have to pass a basic shochu blind tasting test just to be eligible to work at the distillery. It doesn't matter if you're going to be a receptionist or a salesperson, a truck driver, or a janitor. You need to pass this test before they'll let you work for them. And that's just the beginning. There are several additional tiers or levels of testing required to move up to becoming a member of the quality control committee. This is the group that tests everything before it leaves the distillery to make sure that it meets the standards and the flavor and aroma profile for that brand. Their main brand tastes the same every single time. And that's not the end. That's just another step in the, in the ladder, another rung in the ladder. And the next test would allow you to join the blending team. These people are responsible for making sure that each batch uh, passes that taste test process from the quality control folks. But beyond the blending team is product development, which is done by the best of the best of the tasters at Sanwa Shurui. And it's really done collaboratively. You can imagine how different that is from the craftspeople, the toji, who are coming up with their own products through trial and error, like endless trial and error and making everything in small batches. Sanwa Shurui is so democratic that even the company president's role, if memory serves, has passed between the four families. Uh, it was, you know, it was kind of a, a revolving door every few years to make sure that there was equal control and there wasn't too much influence from one of those factions or the other. That, of course, changed very recently when they hired their first non-family president since their merger back in the 1950s. And he was a company employee who got a PhD on the company's dime, and he became one of the most, one of the most respected, one of the foremost experts in shochu production in Japan. Yeah, they're certainly in good hands, a company we definitely don't need to worry about for the foreseeable future. Uh, in fact, they've leveraged their success domestically to become the leaders of shochu export. They're the only distillery... Uh, with boots on the ground in the U.S. There are actual Ichigo employees responsible for sales and promotion. So they're really leaders in every sense of the word. Yeah, and hopefully other large makers follow in their footsteps because the more the merrier, we need the help. And of course, 
they were surpassed by Kirishima Distillery, the same distillery that had Yanagita on the ropes in the 1970s. So I guess history has kind of have has a way of repeating itself here. But uh, we are talking about 100% barley shochu. And as we know, success breeds imitation. And today, really, all of the distilleries in Oita are making 100% barley shochu, at least the bulk of what they make is that they might also make some sweet potato, they might also make some rice, maybe even some buckwheat, but it's mostly barley shochu. There's really not that many firms trying to veer away from that very strongly, even though Ichigo and Nikaido virtually they dominate everything in, in the prefecture in, from, from a sales perspective. Yeah, no question. And yet there are plenty of small distilleries that have carved out a small but loyal fan base for their products. And I'm sure some of them sell distillate to other makers for blending or, or for private brands. But it can really run the spectrum from Samwa Shurui at the top to these extremely small producers whose products rarely leave the prefecture. I've only been able to experience some of these small producers' shochu at dedicated Oita shochu events. It's really that limited. I don't see them in liquor stores here in Fukuoka. I mean, I'm a, I'm probably an hour from the Oita border by car, maybe even less. And yet a lot of their stuff doesn't even make it here. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely hyper-local for many of those, many of those outfits. Yeah. So that's a pretty good comprehensive overview of the history of the development and growth of this style. We are talking about 50 years of history, honestly. So now let's talk about what makes it different from barley shochu made with rice koji like they do on Iki Island and how, of course, vacuum distillation plays a part in this and, and anything else that comes to mind. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time, I couldn't really tell much of a difference. And it was only as I started to taste 100% barley versus the Iki style head to head that I started to notice differences. Mm-hmm. For me, the the barley, 100% barley, it generally, of course, we're talking predominantly vacuum distilled, but it tends to be, to me, much more clean, much more linear. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's when you add the the rice into the ingredient, into the mash bill, you end up with more flavor compounds, more aroma compounds, so it becomes thicker. I think of Oita Barley Shochu, the 100%, as just be- being very linear, very clean in how it presents. I w- I'm not saying it's uninteresting or one note. It's just uh, there's a little bit less going on. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that is. I mean, my this is counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people, but the, the rice koji adds a lot more complexity and depth to the spirit than actually a barley koji does with a barley main ingredient in the secondary fermentation. It's always the very apparent to me when I drink ikijochu that it's it's quite interesting. There's several different layers of flavor going on there. Whereas, as you said, the linear nature of oita mugi shochu is present for a lot of these brands, especially the vacuum distilled ones. And what the vacuum distillation does, as we've discussed many times, is it tends to reveal a lot of fruit and flour in the spirit. Um, one thing about Ichigo products that always jumps out at me is that there tends to be a light, either almost a banana note or a, a, a slight melon hint to it. They have a wide variety of different spirits that they can leverage in their blends. And they're also the the distillery behind SG, the SG Shochu. I think they do want the article at the front the SG Shochu's barley expression, Mugi, and they do a wonderful job of blending. You know, similar to the whiskey industry, at, at least until very recently, 
there isn't a lot of working together, it seems, with other distilleries, no trading, no bartering or anything like that. So they depend on all in-house blending, all in-house distillation and aging, and they're pretty damn good at it. But I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it's linear. Yeah, I think the um, Ichigo, just because of their exacting standards that we talked about before, they just don't rely on anybody else to make their base distillates that they're blending with. Sure. They've just worked it out so clearly, but there are certainly other distilleries that do buy product or sell product to other distilleries. There is that kind of trading that does happen. Sure. But yeah, I think you're right for, for Ichigo, that doesn't, that doesn't happen uh, to any degree that we're aware of. But then, you know, what's interesting is Ichigo kind of threw us all a curveball when they released Saiten, mm-hmm. the 40% alcohol shochu for the U- US market or for the export market that's intended to be a cocktail base. And it's 100% barley, but it's so not Ichigo. <laughs> yeah. If I can say it that way, it's got so much girth. It's got so much body. There's so much more of the the grain mm-hmm. and and the dairy that you get with with uh, atmospheric distilled shochu. Of course, it, them being Ichigo, it's still a blend, but I think that the, the atmospheric distillate uh, comes through much more strongly than it does for their other expressions. Mm-hmm. You were talking about smaller makers, and I think that's where a lot of the atmospheric distillation is happening these days. Ichigo has had a harder and harder time meeting its sales numbers on an annual basis. It's, it's suffering the same fate as everybody else in the country, honestly. But some of the distilleries that are not suffering that same fate are the really small ones, the folks who don't benefit from economies of scale, but they do benefit from making really interesting and even more expensive products that find fans all across the country, even if they can't get a hold of them. And the only way they can enjoy the brands are through Instagram. But still, it's uh, those brands, as you as you intimated, with the vac, not vacuum pressure, but the atmospheric distillation. So there's no vacuum added to the pot and it's ends up boiling at a pretty high at an increasingly higher and higher temperature, right up to the boiling point of water and sometimes even beyond. That's a very vigorous boil, obviously, when compared to vacuum distillation and you get, you hit pretty much the, the vapor point of everything that's in there and you get a much more robust flavor profile. Steven mentioned dairy. That's definitely possible. Those products are much grainier. They often will also have a lot more toast to them. Sometimes you get some dark sugar notes in there as well, among other things. But uh, very interesting products that are available locally, as Stephen said before. If you're lucky, then you might find somebody across the country who has a personal connection or, or visited the distillery and asked enough times to be able to carry it in their liquor store. But otherwise, it's just such a small volume production that you really have to go there to find it. Yeah, I think what comes to mind for me when you're talking about the atmospheric distilled 100% barley shochus from Oita, the first one that jumps to mind for me is is Taime from Fuji Distillery. Sure. They're tiny, really, really small production. They uh, all handmade koji. Basically, everything they make is atmospheric. Mm-hmm. They have one brand that's made with local barley, which is actually pretty uncommon. That's why I mentioned at the top of the show, this isn't really a terroir-driven regional style yeah because most of the barley is imported or at least from other parts of japan yeah it, well, most of it's from from australia yeah that's right yeah it's most of it's imported uh barley but taime not their taime brand they've got another brand that that's 100 percent local barley but everything they make is just so interesting and they even do uh, annual releases of their genshu of their undiluted shochu to essentially express for their fans what 
each year's batch is going to taste like because there is seasonal or annual variation, just like you would get with wine or other small batch production alcohol. Yeah, now there has been some innovation within the industry in Oita. They have their own Oita bread, Oita native, I guess is the way to say it, Oita native barley strain called Toyono Hoshi. It's used in a, a few different brands. It's naturally much more expensive than imported barley, but it's, it's quite nice. If you happen to cross that name, Toyono Hoshi, which you will if you, even if you're at Ichigo, I think they make at least one brand out of it. Um, I believe that brand you referenced from Fuji is also made with that, that strain of barley. It's really beautiful. It's lush. It's a lot deeper. Sometimes you feel like the barley that is used to make some of this stuff was intended for making tea instead because it's really light and clean. No disrespect intended. That's the entire point of much of the style. But people are really coming around to some of these newer expressions, these smaller expressions. And there's a bunch of really interesting distilleries out there that are that are doing fun things like Kubo is doing great stuff. Oimatsu is, is you know, they're big. Um, Yatsushika is, is doing good stuff. It's an exciting time to especially be into Oita Shochu if you're, if you're curious about how it works with barrel aging, because there's a ton of it happening in that part of Japan right now. Sure. And I think we would re- remiss if we didn't mention Kanehachi. I think generally, it, it's interesting as you talk to people, uh, I often find people talk about Ichigo as being a famous brand. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Ichigo is famous. I think it's popular because it's affordable. And don't get me wrong, it's extremely well made. Uh, but you can get it anywhere, which makes it affordable with economies of scale. And then it's uh, it it all just kind of grows and it all works. But if we were to say, like, what is the most famous when we say famous, we mean like well-respected premium uh, barley shochu brand in Japan. I think I think there are two uh, and one would be Kanehachi. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's fair. Yotsuya distillery up on the north side of of um, Oita Prefecture. Absolutely. It's very well-respected, sought after. It's also been on the map for a while. Mm-hmm. I think Taimei is also really well-respected, but it just hasn't really been on people's radars for quite as long. Whereas um, Kanehache has been in the game since at least the 90s, I believe. So yeah, really, really good brand, um, really small production, of course. And that's also, you know, that's that's helpful for fueling demand, as we've learned. Sure. But sure. Um, it is delicious. Yeah. No, make no mistake. Yeah. It's that roastiness and that body, that girth and everything that you mentioned before about what atmospheric 100% barley shochu can be like, mm-hmm. which I think, it, and it's a beautiful drink, but it is, you'll see that right alongside the three M's on the premium section of a, of a shochu menu. Oh yeah. It, it's, oh, yeah. it's, Absolutely. it's, you're going to pay more for it for sure. It's yep. really, really hard to get your hands on. So let's talk serving styles here for a second. What's your recommendation for the most common Sure. Mugi Joji out there, we're talking the Genatsu, the vacuum distilled, things like Nikaido and, and Ichigo and every, everybody else. Yeah, for me, it's just soda all day long. I mean, these are just so beautiful in highballs. It just all the effervescence just brings out all of those floral and tropical fruit aromas that are so common. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to drink it. I think for me, obviously, I, I do like the uh, Choimizu method, which is a, it's, a, it's on the rocks, but then you put it, you top it off with about 10% more water just to lighten it up a tiny bit. Sure. And that works, except that a lot of Oita Shochu, which we actually haven't talked about in this episode, is bottled at 20%. Yeah, in Oita, right. In the prefecture, that's right. But you will see that in other places. So you don't want to add any water to that if you don't have to. Sure. That's, that's getting pretty low. How about you? What do you What do you think? Uh, uh, of course, the 
the atmospheric's going to go the way you like it, uh, of yeah. course. But but any other thoughts on the service styles? Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely correct. Anytime I hear about vacuum distillation, I'm just thinking cold, and I'm thinking some form of dilution as well. I think a lot of the times, most of the time, a highball is going to work. Mizuati is going to be fine, mostly, or choi mizu, as you just said. And uh, you probably want to stay away from Oyuwati. I'm sure there are brands that work, and I will always try Oyuwati, even when people tell me not to. But it's just not going to be quite as good. It's not going to be at its best in that serve. And I think that when you get into the the smaller brands, the smaller makers, where they they don't have a vacuum still, or they don't have a still that can do both vacuum and atmospheric and everything in between, uh, then I think you have a lot more room for playing with the heat. Those dairy notes, those grainy notes, those nutty notes are going to, and certainly the toasty notes too, are going to play a lot better with heat rather than the fruity notes and the floral notes that sometimes they can go a little bit oblong on you when you add heat to them. Mm -hmm. They don't always shine, but that's just a general guideline anyway. And it's not always easy to know whether something has been vacuum distilled or atmospheric distilled, as we've discussed before. It's just not required that a distillery has to write that on the label, and most of them do not. Yeah, and if if you're drinking an izakaya, they're not going to like you nosing all the bottles before you order. I, I know that from experience. That's very true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should ask. <laughs> yep. But I guess one other thing about service styles and something we haven't talked about, but you can imagine that this exists, is Zen Koji. Mugi shochu. So there are brands that are 100% uh, koji inoculated barley in the mash bill. And those tend to be much more full bodied, even if they're vacuum distilled. Uh, and of course, Ichiko being master blenders, they've got a blend of Zen koji shochu, right? They, because they just do everything that way. Sure. Those actually, I think that Zen koji with the more body that they have, I think those are just beautiful on the rocks. Mm-hmm. That to me is a really, really nice way to drink them. Uh, let let the ice do a little dilution, but get get the experience as it changes uh, as as the ice melts. Yeah, and then of course you want to play with whatever you know whatever you happen to be eating at the same time. You also want to think about that, so mm-hmm. that can influence how you serve the drinks. But you know, hey, chicken on a stick, yakitori with a <laughs> highball. Hey, that's a that's a match made in heaven right there. So um, you know, all of the folks out there around the world who have access to Ichiko, there you go. I mean, give that a shot. It'll put a smile on your face. Yeah. No, Ichigo, as I said at the top of the show, was the first shochu. It was my gateway. It's what sent me down this rabbit hole. Uh, and for a long time, I just drank it on the rocks uh, and then eventually started incorporating Mizuwadi and, and Sodawadi. And I agree with you. These vacuum distillates just don't really work with hot water. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions, but they're rare. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, I can't think of a single uh, Oita barley shochu that's vacuum distilled that I would drink Oiwadi. Yeah, nor can I. So you sipping on anything right now? I am. And this is a, this is a wild one. This is, uh, well, wild to me, just in, in, in all the right ways. This is Moria from Bungo Mejo. And that's uh, 100% barley. It's actually the barley shochu served on ANA business class. That's where I know it. Okay. Yep. I thought it was, I thought it was yellow koji. But then when I did my research for the episode, it's actually white koji vacuum distilled, but with Nadeshko yeast. They're using flower yeast. Okay. And their other trick to get this nice, light, clean, floral, beautiful, elegant aroma is they polish the barley down to 50%. So they're almost kind of making a barley sake 
before they distill it. Wow. And it is everything you'd expect. It's just so elegant, beautiful aroma, beautiful mouthfeel, absolutely lovely drink. I understand why it's available in business class. It's it's a it's a really, really nice one. And I had only had it on ANA because if you if you fly, what is it, premium economy after dinner service, you can start ordering business class drinks. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'll I'll order and the ramen too. Yeah, yeah, you can get some there's nice little perks available if you if you give yourself that upgrade to premium economy. Uh, this is not a paid advertisement for ANA, but if ANA would like to sponsor us, we'd be happy to do yeah. <laughs> their, their uh, sponsorship. But when I tried this barley shochu, I was like, oh, wow, that's really, really nice. But I didn't ever research more about it. And then when we had the big shochu festival in Fukuoka this summer, I met them and they make atmospheric, they make barrel age, they make a little bit of everything. And then the the guy who is there, I don't even know what his role is with the company. They're not very big, I don't think. But he was like, oh, this is the one on A&A. And I tasted it. I was like, absolutely, that's delicious. So I ended up buying mm-hmm. a bottle. Uh, one of only, I think, four bottles I bought that day, even though I wanted to buy everything. But I, mm-hmm. my bags would have been too heavy. And I had forgotten I had it. And then when we decided to record this episode, I was hunting my my stash for Oita Barley Shochu and remembered this. And I was very excited to open it. And absolutely gorgeous with soda. I actually broke out a new Arita yaki cup that i had purchased a couple of months ago i hadn't used yet hmm. with little goldfish nice it's, it's pretty i'll maybe i'll put a picture of that in the show notes as well but anyway yeah really really uh enjoying this how about you christopher what are you sipping on if anything like you i have a ton of each gold products around my <laughs> on the shelves all around me i was looking for something a little bit less predictable and we've already said the name um i always have at least one ishobin of kanehachi around uh just for special occasions and i'm down to my last bottle right now um but that's what i'm sipping the distillery is a is a fun old one to visit if you ever have the chance um i'm not sure the the type that would just allows walk-ins for those that are listening you probably would need an introduction at least i did when i first visited them uh several years ago many years ago but it's a you know if you ever see it on a on a menu absolutely trying it uh, try it and i'm i'm having it as you might expect with hot water and it's really really lush i can almost taste it through the microphone mm-hmm. yeah that's mm-hmm. that's a beautiful beautiful shochu and i have never owned an bean of that and that's something i think i need to change it's uh it's it's one of my favorites for sure it's you need to rectify that post haste all right it's it's funny i i was um wondering if we would find enough to talk about Oita Shochu. And then when I began scripting, I realized that we'd have plenty to talk about, but I figured it would be a, on the short end of our, our average episode. And then of course we found lots more to talk about. So yeah, uh, as always, uh, it's, it's been fun and hopefully our listeners uh, it enjoyed learning a little bit more about this uh, regional style. Yeah. Oita Mugi Jochu. And that's kind of a wrap. It was, even though it doesn't have protection, it does have uh, trademark protection. Uh, they trademarked Oita Mugi Jochu collectively in the prefecture back in 2007. So hopefully the next step at some point will be government protection on one level or another. But well, until then, you know, from one Shochu enthusiast to another, Oita Mugi Jochu, they come by. Come by. So thank you all very much for listening. And if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening to our shows. It really does help others to find 
this show and it's alarming to us how often drinks nerds around the world who consume every and all manner of drinks related podcasts and are very interested in Japan and yet have never heard of Japan distilled. So please help us get the word out there. Any little bit you can do will help. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or on Instagram, as long as those as long as those businesses still exist. Um, you can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? And you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes for this and every episode. I'll post pictures, more information. Uh, you'll get to see my pretty ceramic from this episode. Also, please tune into our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time.